Hi, and welcome to the 4th U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly. I'm the Director of Religious Education here at 4th Universalist Society in the city of New York. Each month, we sit down for two different podcasts centered around our theme of adult education for the month. For April of 2021, we are specifically looking at colonialism. How do we confront this as a community, and how do we be informed about colonialism in our justice work that we do. I am really excited to be sitting down with my special guest, Shane Creeping Bear, today. So I am so excited to sit down with Shane Creeping Bear today. Shane, thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, be joining you today. Our topic of the month, uh, as I mentioned in our introduction, is colonialism. How does it impact our lives? How does it impact our world still today? How does it impact history? It's a very broad topic. There's there's so many uh, different ways that we could talk about this. But honestly, I think that the most important would be to start by introducing you and your story and the work that you do uh, to our listeners. So Shane, can you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. My name is Shane Creeping Bear. I'm a member of the Kiowa tribe of Oklahoma. I'm also Pawnee and Arapaho, um, but I'm only on the roll for the Kiowa. They only let you choose one. Um, uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am uh, the father of four amazing children, five amazing children. I'm the father of five amazing children. I currently am the Associate Director of Admission at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I attended Antioch and graduated in 2008. I'm currently in a graduate program at Claremont Lincoln University, where I'll be focusing predominantly on higher education administration uh, with a focus on colonialism and decolonization. There's a rich connection between uh, the UU Church and Antioch College, uh, but that's probably tied closely to Antioch's history as a sort of politically liberal, social justice-focused institution. Uh, Antioch itself was founded by abolitionists, in 1850, uh, one of our, our and our first president, Horace Mann, who is also credited with the idea of public education for all, basically um, during our first convocation said, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. So for the last 170 years, uh, students who <laughs> are people who choose to come to Antioch have some idea about changing the world for the better. Um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, as I mentioned, and in high school, I got involved with um, nonprofit organizing through hip hop music culture. Um, I was involved in Food Not Bombs and No More Prisons, a movement to abolish prisons, uh, for-profit prisons in the United States. And sort of organically, I kept, people kept recommending Antioch College to me. 
and I finally checked it out and realized why they were recommending it to me. And it's part of that uh, idea that I wanted to do uh, more with my career. I wanted to work towards changing the world for the better through the work that I uh, chose to do. And that's how I ended up at Antioch. At Antioch, I became became involved in uh, organizing in a, in a broader way. I was exposed to uh, new ways of thinking about how to organize economies and um, topics like identity politics and other other sort of social justice uh, uh, initiatives. It wasn't until after I graduated Antioch that I really took a deep dive into exploring the impacts that colonialism had on um, Native people in the United States, Indigenous people here on what we refer to as Turtle Island. And it's uh, it's been a multi-year deep dive into what colonialism is and uh, just being able to articulate it in a number of ways that barely scratch the surface has taken a, a lot of time um, f- for me, uh, research, um, and it's something that I'm, uh, of course, deeply passionate about. So in our pre-podcast conversation, we were actually talking a little bit about how colonialism, when you when you really start to get learning about it, can be this this very radicalizing topic. Like other things, you know, we may be uh, slightly bothered by global warming or annoyed that our money is in politics, uh, but when you get learning about colonialism, I, I think that one of the reasons that it can be so radicalizing is because it can confront like this American myth that we're all uh, raised with. How is how has that American myth and confronting that been for you in your life? Yeah, I mean that's sort of where I see my work taking me uh, in these topics is is really just confronting the the mythology and the origin story of uh, the United States. It's all encompassing to the point of um, near overload. Um, the idea that this is sort of really deeply entrenched in our uh, sort of DNA as a society is what, you know, what I see my work really focusing on in the in the next couple of years uh and, and as i finish uh, grad school i i guess it's hard to sort of explain in a, a superficial way um or or i guess a quick way but uh, really the idea is that it's so deeply ingrained in our education in our media in our society that it's hard to imagine a world um, that isn't colonized, <laughs> if if that makes sense. I began looking into sort of topics around decolonization and indigenous uh, liberation through this work, uh, and that part of that is confronting the that that aspect of colonialism, um, and it's stuff that I'm still unlearning to this day, things that you're sort of taught in school. And it's, it's sort of hard to even um, swallow some of the information once you start 
looking into it and peeling back the layers of the onion. Um, one of the books that really drove this home for me was Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, in which she pushes back greatly uh, through her own work and the work of others uh, about the that mythology, uh, about the creation story of the United States, uh, the bad actors, and really to drive home the point that the in genocide of indigenous people on Turtle Island is something that's ongoing to this day. It's not merely a fixed point in our past or in history. It's not something that happened. It's something that is currently happening and has been unfolding across the globe uh, for hundreds of years. Yeah, definitely. I think that that book i i also can't can't recommend that enough um it is uh great uh reading in terms of getting uh to the, the history of it and i think as you were saying there that you know it's it's this thing that's that's all encompassing and i think uh on some level that that can make it hard for for people to to confront colonialism like that that it's just such this big all-encompassing thing and the thing is is that I think it also in the way that we're taught about it in American society is it's made to be like this this small historical thing that happened that as you said um like this that we're, we're taught that it's this thing in the past like oh you know like yeah whoops like we didn't realize that we were coming over here and taking taking all of this land um and then like whoops we just happened to expand the country over the whole thing and just force everybody off of their lands and uh you know like it was, but now we're, we're done with that everything's fine now like it's, it's very much this uh this attitude that colonialism was a thing of the past but like, I mean, to from my studies and from like the, the work that you've done and um, from your own life experiences, like colonialism is still very omnipresent uh, and real part of our society, even if we like to think that it's something that we just did in the past. Yeah, and it's something that once you sort of get a sort of a, a fix on it, you start seeing it. It's one of these things that you start seeing these patterns and, and traits about things. Um, you know, a good, good um, <clears throat> example is uh, even today, uh, the, the, the debate about gun rights and gun ownership in the United States is incredibly closely tied to colonialism and uh, the sort of the, the, the land surveying, um, land speculation, land grabs that happened as uh, westward expansion took hold. And that sort of, again, um, frontiers lifestyle, rugged individual sort of uh, trope that is sort of really crammed down um, uh, our society's throats through media and pop culture. Um, which again is nothing new. I mean, that was very intentionally writ into our history. Uh, you know, a good example I always bring up is, you know, George Washington, uh, who's, uh, uh, you know, one of the first things you learn is that he was our first president. Um, one of the things that you don't learn, however, is that he made his fortune uh, in land speculations, uh, specifically in the Ohio Valley, uh, where he paid um 
people to basically eradicate the indigenous people from the land so that he could break it off and sell it. Right. So that's just like a small example. That's one person, but that's such a huge aspect of his identity. That isn't something that's talked about in school, even, you know, conversations that you can have about sort of the mythical characters like Daniel Boone, uh, Davy Crockett, uh, again, they were these these um, part of this land speculation process uh, where they were going out and clearing um, indigenous communities out uh, so that people could uh, take the land from them. So <clears throat> it's it's really interesting. And again, it's really sort of daunting and becomes all encompassing as you begin to to look at it in this way. When you even have the other like sacred figures later in the, the American myth. Um, such as like Abraham Lincoln, who uh, he, you know, may have been fighting the war to end slavery. And so we've, we've lionized him for that. But at the same time, he was very much, uh, this, this whole discussion about slave state versus free state was also about westward expansion. And he was, mm-hmm. was very much pro-expanding the U.S. and pro-genocide uh, of indigenous peoples. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's sort of interesting because, you know, I'll I'll get a lot of pushback when I bring up these types of topics and criticize some of these figures in our history because they're so sort of tied to our identity as a society, as a nation. Um, It's hard to even think about them like that. And and I, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of discussion happening you know in the last couple of years around the constitution and the founding fathers and uh, inevitably you know people will start criticizing the founding fathers for their own characters as their own characters and 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 how you know things were written to exclude people um and it's sort of still shrugged off you know by society at large, like, oh, it was just a different time and things like that. There, those uh, conversations somehow are, are justified in our thinking. Um, and really, there isn't any justification for, for that behavior, for the things that they did. And it's relevant today. So again, it's, it's not like something that just happened in the past that we can sort of let go. I mean, these people knew what it meant to maintain power for generations and uh they they still they still do today those those families are still in power today so um if 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 anything it's um incredibly important for us to talk about this openly and have conversations about the mythology um and point out those uh you know and i i say mythology is it's almost sort of a polite term you know they're they're their outward lies about about our history the broader outlook is you know ever since the printing press came about in the industrial revolution uh, people have known what it means to maintain uh the the information to print the things that they want to be printed to say the things that they want to be said uh, and what that, how, how that impacts uh, society in a larger scale. So the control of information is also an aspect of colonization today. Uh, I keep mentioning that we learn these things in school, but you know, 
it, it's really important to like really sort of step back and say like, okay, well, you know, who's funding the information? Where did the information come from? You know, whose research gets funded in universities and institutions who makes the tests, uh, ACT, you know, SAT tests um, that sort of uh, gatekeep these institutions. I watched an interview with Roxanne uh, Dunbar-Ortiz where she was talking about, um, uh, she made like a companion book, uh, Young People's uh, in Indigenous People's History of the United States. So it's for um, middle to high school grade level. And, you know, teachers love it, but, you know, they always say, I, I have my students read this, but, you know, if they were to answer the questions like this in their standardized tests, they'd be incorrect, you know? So there's this like really direct pushback from this information uh, getting out into our conversations in, in society and, and it's a it's a it's a very systematized pushback that starts with you know education and 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 has been sort of part of our education for generations generations um so it's really it's really got uh got it's 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 hooks in deep well i mean it's just so ingrained in in our society and you know i think that that people you know they they in seeing it as a thing in the past in seeing uh colonialism as this uh this past thing that's over and like uh maybe you know they now want to start atoning for it but without realizing that it that it's still an ongoing thing uh, and it, it kind of sets up um you know this uh i'm trying to think of a good phrasing here it sets up a um you know i think one i to, to refer to roxanne and she has another text that's called uh, all the real indians died off where she talks about that like part of this systemic uh approach to that how colonialism has ingrained itself in our society is we we've come up with this kind of legend that oh you know like that real indian culture died and people refuse to see uh the indigenous peoples alive today as a continuation of of this struggle that has been going on for centuries fighting against colonialism and many people often choose to you know just kind of ignore that which is just continuing the the colonial uh method uh, by ignoring the indigenous voices that, that still exist to this day. I know that you've done work around and thought a lot around uh, indigenous erasure. And I know that we're also going to talk about it a little bit in our wider in conversation event later this month in April uh, of 2021. So I, I'd be curious if you want to like touch a little bit on, on what indigenous erasure looks like and how that's like a function of colonialism as, as the system. Indigenous erasure is, uh, as you said, a function of colonialism, um, and it's a dark one, and it works in a lot of different ways. Some of it is uh, maintained like that in our uh, educational systems, but some of it is sort of unintentional and maintains itself, like I said, through the use of media and pop culture. The idea behind Indigenous erasure is... Uh, that of the, you know, when you think of the colonial goals, 
uh, to take out the indigenous population so that you can utilize the resources and land uh, for your for for colonization's benefit. I'm trying to think of so I think believe it was Thomas Jefferson who uh, used to talk about the white skin of indigenous people and how they could almost be categorized as white or the the darkness of their skin could be bred out because unlike African slaves, um, indigenous people on Turtle Island weren't valued for their labor, they were valued for their land. So it makes sense for you to try to claim and categorize as many of them as, as white uh, as possible. It's a function of colonialism. It's something that's happened all over the world. Um, the other, so that's, you know, one aspect is that they want to get rid of the people here. And that's sort of the, the, the driving force behind erasure. Uh, so there's the very physical, real aspect of erasing Native people from the land, and that's uh, taken place in the ways of um, disrupting food systems, killing buffalo, for example. Um, there's pictures, if you just do a quick Google search, of um, buffalo being slaughtered en masse um, in the the plains, Great Plains areas and the Dakotas. And the idea was really to starve the Indians out and um, take, disrupt their own food supply, um, which is what I would classify as villainy. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the closest acts that we can come to um, like a super villain. Um, you know, when we think about it in terms of like comic book, like, uh, this this was an idea to starve out indigenous people. Um, we all are sort of familiar with the story about uh, soldiers giving indigenous people blankets with smallpox. Um, and again, that's, that's another way of erasing people from the land is just by getting rid of them altogether. Now, one of the things that colonialism did discover that is that uh, indigenous people are incredibly resilient and uh, we do still exist today. And that's a big problem for colonialism. Uh, even today, as we push back and um, fight to reclaim territory, land, to um, um, push people to uphold treaties that have never been honored, um, it has, it's a problem and it gets in the way of the colonial project. So, you know, part of that happens through media, um, reducing indigenous identity as sort of this um, um, homogenized culture. So that's one way is that um, people view native people as like one native type of, you know, Native American. Um, and that can be seen just in how we're portrayed in media. <laughs> as early as like, look at old Bugs Bunny cartoons, you know, and where, you know, there's just one, you know, dumb Indian, like that Bugs Bunny is trying to outsmart. And, you know, that, that, that in and of itself is an interesting way to erase native identity because it reduces the way that society thinks about native people. Uh, but it also reduces the way that native people see and think about themselves. You know, when, 
society and media reflect that uh, you want I, I grew up watching those cartoons like that's what I thought you know native people were um, growing up you know and I'm sitting here you know a, a native you know person going like oh my gosh um, you, you know I've reduced myself to, to that thinking and, and so it's hard to escape that when um, mascots are prevalent the stereotypes are prevalent you know, indigenous, you know, sports mascots and logos is a huge issue for that reason. Uh, and another way to think about this as well is, again, and I, I always kind of go back to school because this is where these myths were sort of, uh, you know, pushed into my own mind. But uh, again, one of the earliest lessons that you learn in school is about the discovery of the United States and Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and, you know, 1492 and, you know, discovered America. And, you know, we, we know who Christopher Columbus is as a society. Uh, we know who he is. And, you know, thankfully as a society, we've begun really sort of examining who that person was individually. Um, and, but, you know, one of the things that you're not taught is um, where he landed, uh, the people that he encountered, you know, and how he interacted with them, um, the name of those people. So here's a whole group of people that is left completely out of our history books. Um, and unless you've done the research uh, or maybe read some articles that come out around uh, Indigenous Peoples Day every fall, you might not know what the name of that tribe was. And that is a function of erasure. That is a function of indigenous erasure. We are not in the history books. Uh, we're not part of the conversation about the discovery of the Americas. Um, and again, some of this stuff happens intentionally. Um, some of it happens uh, and maintains itself um, through media tropes and things like that. Well, one thing I can't help but think about as you as you talked about that was the way that the United States almost kind of lays claim to uh, native like tribe names and place names, uh, and they'll be like, "Ah, yes, this is called uh, Muskegon because uh, I think of this because I lived in Michigan for some time, you know, it's tied to this, and they they treat it as like, "Oh, this is part of our heritage." So it's also like this theft of uh, not only have they stolen the land, but then they're they're stealing and saying, ah, like this is this is part of American identity. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's pervasive, and and again, uh, it, it, it's sort of everywhere you look, and and the more you learn about it, the more you'll see it sort of everywhere um, you look, and that's a that's a great example. Uh, we we take the names of these these tribes and these people for our towns, our cars, um, objects, and don't know anything about the actual people uh, tied to those names, to those locations, um, to that land. And that's one of the reasons that uh, things like um, indigenous land acknowledgments have come into a broader practice. Um, especially in institutions of higher education, uh, but the idea that that you open a ceremony, an event, a meeting by acknowledging um, <clears throat> the names of the indigenous people that once inhabited the land that you are currently 
on or occupying. A couple of years ago, I I was removed from Facebook. Um, um, and this actually took a took off a good bit in the media. If you Google my last name, it might be one of the the first things that comes up is this this sort of this Facebook conversation that happened on it happened on you know Columbus Day, which I, I call Indigenous Peoples Day, and, and many others do. Um, but you know, for the for the sake of the the sort of point, like the the impact of of this um, Facebook closed my account on Columbus day and sent me a message, something to the effect of uh, your name goes against our standard and policy. It's not, um, I forget what the, the actual language was, but it was incredibly demeaning. It was not valid. So basically their filters or whoever goes through um, saw my name uh, creeping bear and decided that it was a fake name. Um, so it's 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 interesting in that in in a couple ways and and I I sort of categorize this as a, as another aspect of erasure. Um, not only is creeping bear an anglicized version of what was once a, a native uh, name, um, but it was not still not anglicized enough to pass Facebook's name. Um, standard practice uh so it's really interesting so yeah so i went on to to twitter which i never use except to complain to companies because they tend to respond quickly and complained about facebook saying that screenshotting the the language they used and of course i think by the end of the day somebody from facebook had reached out to me uh got my account back up but at that point, the stories had already started. Media was already contacting me and several other people. It's not like this is new or something that only happened to me. A lot of uh, indigenous people go through this. Um, and then you have to, of course, validate your your existence, um, which, again, is, is sort of this like series of strangely demeaning hoops just to like maintain a Facebook account. But, yeah, it's, a you know, the the naming practices that Facebook adopted, they adopted through the lens of uh, colonized society and decided that Creeping Bear um, is, it was not um, uh, a, val a valid <laughs> name to be using, so. Well, and with this tech world, I couldn't help but also think about how you were talking about like the the brands, you know, such like first one that came to mind was, was Pontiac Cars because I, Lived in <laughs> lived in Michigan, uh, and but the thing is, as someone who's tried to educate themselves on on things, when you hop on Google or these search engines, sometimes you know you'll search, you'll try and like search this tribe name as you're trying to like educate yourself, and instead you get like all these brands. So it's another way that like these brands by or these brands, these cities, these places by adopting these uh, you know stealing these identities which we should call it what it is uh that in the tech world then it monopolizes the space so that you have to keep digging or enter really specific phrases to be able to actually find information because the brands overpower all yeah yeah absolutely and that's i mean that's incredibly apt and that's you know sort of that helps drive home that that idea that i keep coming you know back to is that this is sort of an all-encompassing thing that really is like everywhere yeah. that I look. So with, with something so all-encompassing, how do we 
like both on a personal level for you, like what does decolonization mean? But like, how do, how does as a society, as a religious congregation, like this is a multifaceted question here, but like what, what does decolonization mean? How do we, how do we begin to even confront such a huge monster of a social uh, thing, social system? Right. Yeah. Decolonization is a term that refers to the idea of reverting to a time, not necessarily a time, but sort of a way of being uh, pre-colonization. And again, that's sort of, it's hard to encapsulate in a way that that does the term justice because in order to understand what it would take to have a decolonial outlook, you have to understand sort of the, the weight of colonization on the world and on indigenous people all over the world and in the global South. But when I think and talk about decolonization, I talk about, in terms of uh, ways of being, uh, ways of understanding, uh, of knowing. Um, You can talk about decolonization in terms of uh, uh, decolonizing your diet. You can talk about decolonization in terms of decolonizing a um, syllabus for a college course. I can give you some examples of decolonial efforts. Um, One that I like to talk about is, uh, refers to epistemology uh, or ways of, you know, knowing or learning. And there's a term, and you have to forgive me because I can't remember who coined it, but it's called epistemicide. And something that happened through the process of colonization and genocide uh, was breaking uh, indigenous people of their ties to their ancestors and to their ways of knowing and being. One of the prominent ways is how indigenous people cared for the land on Turtle Island. the very carefully maintained uh, populations of animals, agriculture, uh, trade routes all up and down all of the Americas. Ways of caring for the land were of course separated. Um, Most of the um, indigenous people in the United States and Canada uh, were removed from their homes and their communities and sent to Indian boarding schools. Uh, At the Indian boarding schools, of course, uh, uh, Native uh, children were not allowed to speak their language. They were not allowed to eat their food. They were not allowed to talk to uh, or be connected in any way with their their tribes, their elders, their parents. Uh, Their hair was cut. They were forced to wear uh, different clothing. and this happened for generations. Uh, so if you can sort of like just sort of take that in for a moment, 
and think about how much information was lost just by stealing those children and keeping them from their culture, their families, from their ways of knowing. It's epistemicide, right? Um, so one of the process of decolonization is sort of taking a step back and looking towards indigenous people uh, who still maintain some of that knowledge and information um, and incorporating it into the ways in which we're caring for the land in which we're teaching about caring for the land um, in different aspects of, uh, of, of making connections to those old ways of knowing and thinking. Um, and of course, uh, most, many, most of the tribes, um, tribal groups and communities uh, on Turtle Island and in the Americas is very much a, it's an oral history, you know, so it's information that's passed down um, through the teachings, through stories, through song, through ceremony, um, and all of that was disrupted. Um, so... That's one aspect of decolonizing sort of education is sort of taking a step back and, and thinking about ways that we teach, ways that we learn, um, and you know, teaching and reconnecting those old ways um, to the classroom, to best practices for um, land stewardship you know, environmentalism and things like that, sustainability conversations around those topics. <clears throat> yeah, I, th I think that there is a rich opportunity for us to think about the so many ways that we can dive into this work of decolonizing, of confronting colonialism. For those listening to this in April of 2021, we are going to be sitting down together again for an in-conversation event with Shane and I uh, that is on April 27th at 7 p.m. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about Indigenous erasure as well as some of the present day struggles. We're also offering at Fourth Universalist, you still have this next week to sign up, a series called Confronting Colonialism. And Shane will be joining as well for one of the weeks of that course where we kind of examine colonialism, both in its history and its impact on our present day. So Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was uh, great to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me to speak to uh, your congregation. And I'm uh, hopeful uh, that we can have some awesome, exciting conversations um, later in April. And thank you, as always, to all of our listeners. Mm -hmm.